Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Undercast, where we gather around and we talk about the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. This month's marathon are missed blind spots from 2018, uh, as picked by your illustrious hosts. This- That's us. That's us. Uh, this week, I get to pick the film, and I just picked what was next on Netflix. Um, Netflix said I should watch The Outlaw King. Netflix may or may not have been right, but we'll talk. <laughs> That's 90% of the times the case. Um, so anyway, we're going to talk about uh, the Chris Pine venture, uh, The Outlaw King. Uh, I think it's just Outlaw King. I do not believe there is a uh, definite article. There. Uh, perhaps you are correct. I really don't care. But um, I'll go with Outlaw King um, for I think you might be correct. But nonetheless, we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, let's go ahead and identify these disembodied, boy- in disembodied voices speaking to your brains. To my left, sir, who are you? I am Arthur Gordon, and I know you all as men, but today... Today we are podcasters. Indeed we are. To my right, sir, who are you? My name is Dalton Stewart, and what's my name? Um, Douglas, it turns out, not Dalton. Douglas! Douglas! <laughs> uh, my name's Dustin Sells. They may take our lives, but they can't take our freedom. Here we are, talking Part Braveheart. Two. No, wait a second. <laughs> talking Braveheart 2. Um, Dustin actually Boogaloo. retreated to the woods after he failed to uh, enjoy this movie, and we haven't heard from him since. Yep. This is an, uh, He's currently trying to rally support from uh, Red Six to Golden Corral. <laughs> right. Trying to raise an army, and it's not working. Uh, we've got three dogs, so uh, that's a start. Yep. Uh, I mean, dogs are handy um, for things. Hey, the Romans used them. They did. Um, I used to raise them for um, bird hunting. Really? Yeah, once upon a time. I used to raise German short-haired pointers. That's cool. Huh. And train them. Yes, I Learn something new every day. You've truly lived a life, my friend. Um, uh, nonetheless, uh, here we go. Uh, we're going to talk about this movie. In case you're tuning in for the very first time to the Good Trash Genre Cast, this is not a review show. And this is very, very new content that we're dealing with. And so what we try to do is to avoid... Well, hold on. It's 700-year-old content if we're going to split hairs. True facts. What happened to Robert the Bruce is a bit of a record um, at this point, um, considering this all happened in the 14th century. Although we'll talk about historical records and the depiction thereof a little bit when we get into analysis, I suspect. Yes. But with the film itself having just come out this very month, uh, what we are saying is that we're going to avoid spoilers, but just for the very first half of the show, because... Because spoilers are sort of necessary to do real analysis. And so what we'll do is we'll do a synopsis from the voice of the cinema. Then we'll do our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, all of which will be spoiler free. We'll play a game which might involve the mildest of spoilers of this film and other films in its orbit. And then and only then, once we get down to business, will we be in the spoiler zone. You have been warned. So, Arthur Gordon, how you doing, buddy? I'm good. Hey, bud, can you do a synopsis for me, please? I think I can pull one up real quick. There it is. In 14th century Scotland, Robert the Bruce claims the crown and leads a fierce uprising to win back the country's independence from English rule. Okay, Netflix had a good one. Netflix, you win. Well, Dustin, normally we close uh, the thumbs up, thumbs down reviews with you, but since you picked this film, I'm curious to see what you think about it. Why'd you pick it, and what did you think? Okay, so I picked it having not seen it. I mean, that is sort of one of the prerequisites for having chosen the film in question. Yeah, we're all we're all trying to focus on uh, our personal blind spots this so, year. So uh, it may be a film the rest of us have seen, but it couldn't be a film that you, the picker, the picker self. The yep. pick self. Although you managed to pick a film none of us had seen. Correct, which was uh, fortunate in that regard. Um, nonetheless, uh, we haven't done much of the uh, sword and sandal, sword and shield, you know, that kind of epic battle genre, which is a massive 
massive movement in cinema and a uh, massive part of good trash cinema. I uh, would I would argue, but I, you're right, we haven't we, done a lot of it. Yeah, we've not done you know your Thirteenth Warriors. We've not done you know any of that sort of epic stuff. And uh, that's in the good trash uh, vein of thinking, because a lot of times it gets a little prestige but there's a lot of good, I mean, just trash trash, especially when I'm looking at the 50s and uh, some of their sword and sandal epics uh, from that time. And so this coming out, I'm like, okay, this is going to be that. Yep. And uh, so I selected it really solely for that purpose. I knew there were some Braveheart analogs. I knew there were some things going on with Scottishness, and I like Chris Pine. I think he's a good actor, and he's a lot of fun to watch. And I thought, you know what, I'd don't think I'll be mad after having watched it. I think I was correct. I'm still making up my mind. We'll see what the show does for me. Um, but that being said, that was really my motivation for watching it. Then I watched it. Um, I have to say, it's a bit boring. It's a bit slow. It's two hours and a minute or so, I believe, if I remember the right Yeah, down, down by um, the early cuts that screened at festivals, I think, were uh, around like 2.26 or something like that. Uh, I think Dave McKenzie, after one screening at a festival, decided to need to lose 20 minutes. Well, I mean, I'm not sure that was a bad call, because even now, it's still a little boring. Uh, historically, it's uh, you know picking up right where Braveheart left off. It is correcting some of the historical... You know, liberties that were taken there. Yeah, nobody wears kilts, which is important. Uh, For those of you not in the know, uh, the kilt didn't become a a staple of uh, Scottish nobility dress until, like, the 1700s. So it it would be like if, uh, you know, they made a a movie about the American Revolution where they're uh, wearing suits and ties. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I'd watch it. I, I would too, I'm honestly. I'm all in. In fact, I want men in black versus, you know, men in, men in blue versus men in, men in red. Yeah. Is what I want. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so no, no, uh, no kilts. No kilts. And, I mean, so some of those little corrections are being made. Letting Robert the Bruce not be a coward, uh, as he's portrayed to be in the film Braveheart. Right. And letting, you know, uh, the Prince of Wales at that time not be gay, which is a good choice. Um, although there's still debate there's, uh, about whether or not he was, but there's also debate about is there a debate whether or not he was just because it was uh, propaganda against yeah. him? Yeah. yeah. So uh, whatever on that kind of thing, I think that choice is fine. Um, but that being said, it it's just going to take its own historical liberties as time goes on. And that, uh, of course, is something that I'm fine with. And we'll talk more about history and analysis and filmmaking and all that stuff uh, here a little bit later. But it, it the battle scenes are pretty good. Um, the lack of budget shows. So we it's have actually a $120 million movie. That is disgusting to me because we have these nighttime battle scenes. We have these very, very small, limited uh, waterfront battle scenes. We only have one sort of massive uh, battle that happens in a field, and it does not feel anywhere near the scale of what you might experience in a Braveheart. And so I was going with this was a cheap movie, and now knowing that it is not, I am really kind of just nonplussed. Uh, about that because it felt like okay you don't have a lot of budget so you're gonna you know come in tight and uh, deal with your battle in that kind of way uh story beats are very much the braveheart story beats almost to a t uh we'll talk more about uh some of the cinematic grammar that is used that is an echo of braveheart itself and uh why or why not that's a good thing or a bad thing i think chris pine's performance is great um he's he's very solid um, as Robert the Bruce, I think Florence Pugh is always gold, and so I love her the little bit that she is on screen. Uh, we even have our crazy Irishman character, um, played by uh, with a different character, Douglas, that we've referred to already in our quotes moment. And so we have all that stuff coming back. Uh, we don't really have a Brendan Gleeson, um, nor do we have the real Brendan Gleeson. Uh, we've got the, 
the Brendan Gleeson character. Angus. Angus. Yeah. We, we Angus a, of the Isle. We have, a, we have an Angus, but I don't feel like he's, well, maybe. He needed to be Brendan Gleeson. He, he fills the function that Brendan Gleeson fills in Braveheart, this but yeah, he's not the same. This film needs 100% more Brendan Gleeson. But I would argue, uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson, uh, better as the, uh, the, the crazy Irish character, although he's Scottish, but I, oh, I can't think of the name of that actor, but he's in everything. Uh, he's in, the Departed. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. The, the Irishman from uh, from, from Braveheart. Braveheart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, I think Aaron Taylor Johnson fills the uh, the the battle crazed, uh, bloodthirsty, uh, super loyal right hand. I, he's he's he, so good. He certainly plays the same character well. Oh yeah, he does. Um, insofar as it is a playing of the same character. Well, and so that again all kind of bores me because I know where all the beats are going to go. And so what if we made Braveheart, but with and mild spoiler here, I suppose, but with a happy ending. And no, just no. And so I'm pretty ambivalent about it. There are bits I like. There are bits that are really solid. I think the cinematography is kind of amazing. That opening scene in the tent and the tracking shot going back and out, uh, that little sword duel just for kicks and grins, a wager of about, what, five, ten pounds uh, between uh, Robert the Bruce and the Prince of Wales and the, the exposition of where they are and sort of the relationship between characters, I think is brilliant screenwriting and cinematography. But that being said, for the most part, it's a lot of bleh and droll and just droll stuff. And then eventually we get to uh, bits and pieces that I kind of like. So that was my experience of Outlaw slash King. What do you think about Outlaw King, Dalton Stewart? Uh, I mean, I would mostly agree with what you've said so far, Dustin. I, I think that, yeah, that opening nine, ten minutes uh, is really great. It does a really great job of establishing the characters, uh, of establishing what's going on in Scottish history. It lets us know that the bulk of the rebellion has ended. Uh, William Wallace has uh, absconded with his men into the woods. Uh, the Scottish nobility have gone ahead and uh, uh, made a, a treaty with uh, King Edward, uh, the first, it's out the first, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. The first. Look, we're we you, we don't learn about. I, I'm going to be the last person you want to ask about any of these monarchs. Yeah, I think I'm. The, I think that weight might fall on me. Uh, unfortunately, I did not do that much research. Uh, but anyway, uh, we're establishing, you know, what the stakes are, what is going on politically in Scotland at this time, and I think in all of these, whether it's you know in medieval Europe or uh, feudal Japan. Or uh, feudal China, or what? What do they call that period for China? The Warring States period. There we go. Uh, I think in any movie where you're talking about the yield sword times, uh, an important part of that kind of cinema is establishing for the audience, both international audiences and just historically uneducated audiences, what is going on in this part of the world in this time. And I think the first ten minutes of that does a really good job. It's not boring that exposition. Uh, those characters are all introduced efficiently but you're right after that opening 10 minutes of this like king's moot type thing that they're having it really slows down and it doesn't pick up again until we get to the titular outlaw king shit uh, again this yep. is not historical this is historical record so this isn't really a spoiler but eventually robert the bruce wages a guerrilla warfare campaign again that's in the synopsis so i don't know that it's a spoiler but it takes us about a full hour to get to that guerrilla warfare and i think the much more interesting version of the, this movie moves that up towards the start of the film and makes the bulk of the film the character beats that exist within that waging of guerrilla warfare. Uh, I, I will go ahead and shout out the cinematography as well. I think uh, I'll disagree with Dustin in the uh, the argument that the film looks cheap. I will agree the battle scenes are small in yes. scale, but I think it's 
all on the screen. I think the cinematography here is expensive cinematography. I mean, we're using candlelight and natural daylight, which, you know, with digital filmmaking is a little bit easier than it is with uh, film stock uh, because the lighting's a little bit more forgiving. Um, but I think it looks great. I think it looks just, you've got these great overcast Scottish skies, and it really gives you a sense of time and place that I think is really great. I think the costuming is all really great. Um, and that kind of stuff in, in these period films can make or break the movie. For me, for my money, I like it. Uh, but I'm with Dustin. It, it drags a lot, and I, we just don't get a sense of stakes. And we'll probably talk more about this in analysis, but at the end of the day, who gives a shit? All right, well, what do you think, Arthur? Um, I made you watch this movie. Are you mad at me? Uh, not really. I uh, I have a lot of the same criticisms as uh, you both do as far as pacing and yeah, it is. I mean, high praise for that opening sequence. I think it is it's gorgeously shot. I love that tracking. I love the way it starts small, and then we go outside and we reveal the. Uh, they have the little duel, and they kind of have those dynamics, and then it goes back through the tent, and then we have the big reveal of the trebuchet and the the taking out the castle, which I think is a great sequence. I, I love that opening sequence, and then it comes to a halt for about forty five minutes. Yeah, and then uh, about the time. Uh, after they've made love and then they have the ambush at night, it really picks back up, I think. And, and from there on, it, it really moves well. Um, but like Dalton said, uh, I don't care. I, 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 I'm not mad I watched it. I, I did enjoy watching it. I love the action of it. And, and so I'm, I'm not mad about it at all. But it's at, at the end of the day, I'm not going to remember much about this film. Um, I, I, I got lost in all the characters. I only remembered Aaron Taylor Johnson because I know what he looks like. Uh, I think he is uh, a MVP in this film. I think he does a great job. Um, but the only reason I even remember who he is is because I know who Aaron Taylor Johnson yeah. is. And, well, and, and he also beats a guy to death with a piece of chain mail. He does, and it is Which my is new thing. Awesome. Um, it's a great moment. Uh, he has some great stuff uh, in his just bloody face, crazed, just wild re reaction shots of him. Foaming at the mouth. Yeah, he's 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 a standout. And I love I love Chris Pine. I think he does a great job. Florence Pugh. We've, we've kind of loved on this cast, and so I appreciate all that. I think it looks great. I love the cinematography. There's a scene where somebody's dying, and it's just gray and black all around him. You can see those blue eyes pop. It's just a great image. Mm -hmm. um, so it looks beautiful, and, and a high praise for that. Here, the thing though is, and we kind of come back to this. Um, this I've, David McKenzie's made about eight to ten feature films, if I'm not mistaken. I've seen one other one. Uh, and that's Hell or High Water, which I think is just an American classic. Water. I think it'll be heralded as a, a very poignant moment uh, in American time, at least in the Trump era. And uh, what he does there, it, it's this heist film that's about the quiet moments. Mm -hmm. It's about those discussions of, of, of family and brothers, whether they're by blood or by bond. Um, and that's really where this movie is lacking. It doesn't have those... You know, it has quiet moments, but they they don't mean anything. Uh, I, I think the greatest sin of making a historical narrative of whether it's a biopic or why it's a, you know, something like this where we're just we're retelling this historical moment, this moment in time. I, the cardinal sin is you have to make it reflect uh, a matter of the social of, of the modern culture. I think there has to be something there that can speak to the human condition in the moment. And that's where this falls apart. Uh, I, 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 there's nothing to glean from this, right? I mean, there's nothing here to warrant any further discussion. I'm not going to learn more about culture right now or, or about the day right now uh, watching this. And I think that's where it's, it's just a retelling. 
It, it adds nothing to the story that's new. It adds nothing to the genre that to change the game. It's a, a giant $120 million picture that looks beautiful, and it's just kind of an okay story. It, it feels like awards fodder. It feels like prestige fodder. Uh, for the purpose of being prestige fodder. And I think that's really where it, it falls apart with me. Um, you know, I, I like I said, uh, I, I enjoy the last hour. I, I love that. I mean, from the ambush to about the, I mean, the action scenes, the battle at the hill, uh, that whole sequence is great. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm at the end of the day. Uh, it's, it's forgettable. Yeah. It's, we, it's, we need more CPD. Yes. So, well, there you go, dear listener. Those are our biases. They are meh. So, um, and I think that's a good way to describe how we feel about this movie. That does, but that does not mean that there is not interesting conversation to come for you all down the pike. So there'll be more of that in just a little bit. But before we get to that, we want you to be part of the conversation. And you do that via the Internet. So, um, Dalton, how can the Internet nodes connect to our brains and their brains so that our brains can talk to their brains? At good underscore trash, where you can find everything we're making, uh, whether it's this show, whether it's written content, whether it's uh, content we're putting out, like the Praise Down with Heath and Alex or uh, Dustin's side projects that he's working on now. Um, that's going to be at good underscore trash on Twitter. You can also just go to our website, goodtrashmedia.com, for everything that we are up to. Um, if you want to stay off uh, of the internet proper, you can just send us an email. It's goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com, the best way to share your long-form feedback. If you want to support the show, have a conversation with somebody about film, and maybe uh, bring up this dumb podcast that you like listening to while you're talking about film. Um, if you want to support the show in more concrete and less abstract ways, I get that. You can go to iTunes, rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It helps us out a whole bunch. And if you want to contribute financially, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM. We've got all the info about uh, donation tiers and uh, rewards and whatnot over there for you. Once again, that is patreon.com forward slash GTM. But it's not like a tax. Uh, you give it voluntarily. It's more like a tithe. There you go. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I believe now it's time to play the game. It might feel good, it might sound a little something, but damn the game, if it don't mean nothing, what is game? Who got game? Where's the game in life? Behind the game, behind the game. I got game, she got game, we got game. This week's game is our favorite movie monarchs. That's right, favorite movie monarchs, brought to you by Outlaw King. Outlaw King. I'll tell you one thing they want to outlaw. It's that CPD, but he won't let him do it. He's going to wave it free because he's a free man. Or something about Scotland and freedom. I don't know. Well, I guess later with the kilts and the no underwear. Yeah, but that was way later. But yeah, but later. But, but way later. But freedom didn't come till later. That's true. So Under James the First. James Stewart the First. Just throwing it out there. Um, this uh, is, uh, uh, King King we, Philip. I, 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 we just need the, to have a discussion about that. The, uh, my, uh, my men out here. In the, uh, uh, yeah, give me give me that oh, man. We need to go back to the fifties. Get a James Stewart the First of the first King of Scotland and England moot biopic off the ground, starring Jimmy Stewart. Is this James the uh, King James of the famous Bible translation? I don't think so but i'll, I'll 300 look 300 years later is right because that would be the 1600s it might. 1611 is the year of the king james translation could be the i will look into it um because it's james the first um i think there was technically a james an earlier james of england but he it's he was the monarch he was a scottish monarch and for whatever reason he happened to be in line for the scottish throne and the english throne at the same time so it was his monarchy that uh united them uh, in peace as opposed to uh, occupation. So I think it might be. 
I'll look into it. I'm just curious. Um, nonetheless, let's talk about our favorite movie monarchs. Hey, Arthur, you got one? I am. I'm going to start with the cheat because I'm at a loss. And I'm going to go with the titular Kings of Summer uh, from the <laughs> you know what? coming Good of pick. age film. Uh, uh, a, a group of boys just trying to... I ain't mad about it. They they run their woods. They have their little little fort out there, and they 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 run uh, they run the kingdom of the woods uh, as they try to figure out life's little problems. And it's a great coming of age film in a, a year full of them uh, with great performances. And and so uh, it's uh, let's updating it a little bit. We're all the king of our world when we're fifteen and sixteen. We uh we are the monarchs of our own lives, and I think it uh, plays with a lot of those ideas well. I like that pick. It's creative. Thank you very much, Mr. I Arthur. do what I can. You you are. Um, what is your number first pick, Mr. Dalton Stewart? My first monarch that I like is a fictional one because they're the best ones, and it's Queen Amidala of the planet Naboo. That's ah. right. It's Natalie Portman, one of my very first crushes uh, from... Uh, Checks out. Well, look, I know. Uh, from the Star Wars prequels, which, to clarify, I was a tiny child when I watched, and uh, I look, I think there's something really nice about the prequels in that Lucas... Uh, makes his female character uh of of the central cast in that film a lot more active uh than he lets uh Leia be in in the original trilogy. Yes. Look, I'm not here to say that secretly the prequels have been better than the originals all along. We know that that's not true, but I think we can all agree that there are more interesting things going on in the prequels than they are often given credit for. Uh, and I think one of them is letting Natalie Portman uh, have interesting things to do, like be a senator and, you know, get in gunfights a lot uh, and, you know, seize power from, uh, you know, these uh, capitalist bankers who steal her throne. But, you know, monarchs, it's and a whole fight thing. fight in the Coliseum. Yeah. But also she's a democratically elected monarch. I don't really understand how it works. I've spent enough time on Wikipedia in my life that I should know how this works. I don't. Well, you know, I mean, it's just like, you know, a president, you know, you it's a king you elect. Yeah, unfortunately. We really should have uh, just had a parliament. Yes. Short-sighted on the, the part of the uh, the framers. Uh, but, yeah, she's fun. She's great. Uh, does she get murdered by her uh, baby daddy? Yeah, that's kind of unfortunate. But, uh, look, it's a thing that happens in the real world uh, a lot. So, uh, you know, here's to Star Wars for uh, portraying... Uh, Domestic violence is bad, I guess. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to get at something about the prequels being good. But but say what you will about the prequels. Natalie Portman shows up to work in all three of those movies. It's a performance that very easily could have been phoned in. And I don't think it ever is. I think it's compelling throughout. Okay. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton. My number first pick is uh, one Richard Harris in uh, the movie Gladiator as Marcus Aurelius. Uh, the good pick. The father of Joaquin Phoenix, uh, Phoenix. And I really, really just love his sort of gentleness, his thoughtfulness. Um, you know, Marcus Aurelius is one of the great sort of, you know, quote unquote philosopher kings of Rome as one of the Roman Caesars. Uh, of course, all the Caesars were very, very, very bad people. And uh, Marcus Aurelius is no exception to that. But I love Richard Harris's performance as this old regretful king about his life of war and uh, domination uh, that he has wreaked upon the globe at that time. And uh, again, is it historically accurate? No. But that idea, is it compelling? Yes. Is Richard Harris lovable and fatherly? Absolutely. Am I desperately sad when he's murdered by a son? You betcha. And so, love me some Richard Harris, I think, more than anything. 
And uh, so his performance there as Marcus Aurelius is one of my favorite monarch performances of all time. How did Marcus Aurelius get to be known as a philosopher king? Because uh, I've heard that as well. He wrote a lot. He did, uh, okay. And so his writings, you know, they they dialogue with uh, contemporary Stoicism quite a lot. Okay. And so, and he know, I mean, he knows what's going on with Epictetus, Epicurus, and even the sort of pre-Socratics. And so you find some Heraclitus and, you know, basically, you know, Greek, the Romans were able to uh, conquer Greece, but Greece culture Hellenized Rome. That's pretty interesting. And so, in, in some ways, they politically won in Rome, but the cultural battle was won in Greece. That's very fascinating. And uh, as such, uh, Marcus Aurelius is definitely a conversant in uh, those conversations. In, in the same way that you might find uh, Alexander the Great, gotcha. Um, you know, a conversant as a student of Aristotle. It's funny. I in my research about uh, the uh, 13th century or the 14th century, uh, I learned that uh, the monarchy in Northern Europe. Um, whether it's, you know, England or Spain or France, uh, apparently the monarchs of the Middle Ages, not super well educated until way later. I mean, that was in the ancient world. That was what you did. You sent your, uh, your heir apparents to be well educated throughout the world. And they didn't really start doing that until like the 11, 12s, uh, until much, much later in the Middle Ages. Well, they did. And then they stopped. Right. Yeah. Uh, with the fall of Rome. Once once the Goths and the Visigoths That's, came yeah. through. Yeah. 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 Once the, the English and the uh, the Western and Northern Europeans started to take, you know, their own culture over from, you know, what had been Roman culture uh, until the the fall of the empire. Uh, at that point, yeah, they just stopped educating themselves, which is where it became the church were the only educated people. Right. It was really interesting stuff that I was reading about. So, yeah. yeah. You, clerics and uh, clergymen, they could read and write, but oftentimes even kings could not read and write. Yeah. It was it was super interesting to find out that the uh, the monarchy did not become well-educated until right before the Renaissance. Yeah. Nutso, nutso. So, uh, moving right along, um, I did number uh, second... Number or number first, right? Uh, your number first pick, Mr. Arthur Gordon. This is Arthur's number second. Pick. Number second pick. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm you right. talked for too long. When, we, yeah, <laughs> we, well, he, he wanted he wanted to flex on us about uh, the Hellenization of Rome. I That's did fair. Not you asked the question. I know I did. Number next, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Glad please. they didn't make a surreal film out of it. Uh, my uh, my next pick is Mufasa. Hell yeah! Oh, ooh, ooh, scares me. Do it again, Mufasa. <laughs> Shiver with fear. Um, it is Mufasa from The Lion King. Um, again, fictional monarchs are typically better than real monarchs, uh, and they can be more interesting. Um, and uh, Mufasa is just great. He's wise. Doesn't hurt that he's voiced by James Earl Jones. That, that helps a lot, and he's going to be voiced again by James Earl Jones in the upcoming film, and that is a great choice. And I, I was wondering about that earlier, and I looked it up. Um, but Mufasa is just he's wise and he's a good he's a good king he's a good leader he's uh, he's gracious and he's merciful but he's also uh, disciplinarian when it calls for it and everybody has his respect he is uh, the king lion and he's the king of the jungle and that that really comes across uh, as his character there and I think he's a good uh, role model in a pivotal moment uh, a pivotal piece of that film and that narrative for Simba's story and I, I like that dynamic. Uh, I like Spirit Mufasa when he comes back as uh, Simba's subconscious later in the film. Um, and so, yeah, uh, just near and dear to my, my heart, I love The Lion King as a kid and growing up, and uh, Mufasa is one that instantly came to mind when we pitched this game, and so that's going to be my first pick. It is the fate of all good monarchs to be murdered by their shitty brothers. Yes. That's your first pick? The second pick. Second pick. Well, you said first. He's just trying to keep you on your toes. I, I'm so confused. I don't know where we're at anymore. Who Dal can be sure? Dalton, pick again. I shall. Uh, my next pick is another fictional monarch. It is uh, Aragorn 
as played by Viggo Mortensen. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, that's that's the real outlaw king, baby. Give me that ranger. Uh, give give me a king who knows how to you know make a poultice out of some some brush or something. I don't know. Uh, look, poultice, a poultice. He, he yeah. is a man of the people. A it's like a salve, a s- salve, a poultice, a salve. He's right. I'm right. A poultice, a poultice. I don't know this word. That's surprising. Oh man, I know a word Dustin doesn't I'm know. I'm really surprised that, with all your backwoods I, knowledge. That's a rarity. I like that. Okay, poultice. poultice. Look, it's like a healing pack you put make on yeah. yourself using okay. make make medicinal stuff out Do of. Do they things? use yeah. the term a lot in video games? I don't, I think, don't so. think I've ever heard that term in a video game. Okay. I don't know where I picked that up. From. I heard it from my mom, and she talked about. Yeah. Making, I mean, I know sad like home remedies. Yeah, but I, yeah, it's a backwoods ointment. You make it out of you know shrubbery. Huh? Out of shrubbery. Yeah. Bring us a shrimp. <laughs> exactly. Uh, look, Aragorn's a, a great screen king uh, because Viggo Mortensen came up to work every single day. Yes, this is a did. dude who chipped teeth and broke toes and made best friends with a horse. He just had a great time making this movie uh, at the expense of his physical body and probably also his mental health and his sleep schedule. Yes. But uh, he just, he sells it, man. Uh and every second of those movies, uh, you watch it and you go, yeah, obviously, this guy's great. He kicks all the ass and is, like, sensitive and kind and a good friend. And if you're going to tell a story, and, you know, we'll talk about this more in analysis, but huh, if you're going to tell a story about a king, you might as well say that the only good kings are the ones that are nice to people. Mm. Um, and, you know, at the very least, Aragorn is nice when he's not, you know, killing ring wraiths with fire and stuff i don't know it's I, I think that's what makes that character likable it's obviously doesn't hurt that he's played by an incredibly handsome actor um but he's also just super nice to people that he has no reason to be nice to and uh that, that's a good king in my book very good very good um my number next pick is claude reigns as king herod and uh the greatest story ever told nice and, and he is great uh, he's not on screen very very long but he is mad he is wild and he is nuts and he's Claude Rains. He's a hundred percent Claude Rains the whole time. I uh, love and, it. And he's got this great line because, of course, um, the the greatest story ever told. If you happen to see it, it is um, it is the cameo loaded storytelling of the life of Jesus. Maxwell truly, Cedar, he must be the son of God. Which is yeah, John Wayne is the uh, centurion. Are you kidding? Me? Nope. Yeah. yeah, surely this man was. Yeah, it's. Totally I gotta nuts. watch this movie. This yeah. is nuts. I mean, yeah, we've got um, we've got Charlton Heston as John the Baptist for just a second. It is it is full of these little bitty moments. That's it, wild. It, it, it Who is, plays Mary? Uh, Mary, did you know? I don't know. Oh, not a not an actor of note. I don't remember, honestly. Oh, okay. Um, so that, that, honestly, I'm just do not recall Mary at all. I know she's in it, but I'm excited about all these wacky cameos. Yeah, it, 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 I mean that's it. I mean it's just full of very very famous people. Um, you know Hollywood classical Hollywood uh, sort of actors and actresses um, playing all the roles. But King Herod is played by Claude Rains, an old Claude Rains at this point because it's close to 1960 61 uh, when this film finally comes out. And, uh, so, and Reigns is nuts, and I love him, um, as King Herod. So that is my number next pick. Um, Mr. Arthur Gordon, what is your number last pick? You need a king who can quickly and easily be identified as a king, no matter where they are. And the easiest way to tell is that they don't have any shite on them. Uh, and that is Graham Chapman's King Arthur from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. An excellent pick. Um, just come see the violence inherit the system. Stay <laughs> uh, tuned. A, a guy who's just trying his best to, to to find the Holy Grail, and no one can take him serious in, in a 
uh, absurdist world. Uh, and it's just, it's a great performance from, from Graham Chapman kind of playing the straight uh, against this just, uh, Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, second thought. Let's not go to Camelot. <laughs> it's a silly place. <laughs> it's a silly place. Um, and so, you know, King of the Who, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for a king. Uh, it's, it's a great bit. It's a, it's a great movie. Uh, so some, some great, ta- some watery talking. <laughs> so that is seriously one of the funniest moments in film history. It's yeah. so funny. Uh, so I, I think uh, we're talking about fictional or, or, uh, uh, portrayals of uh, the monarch. I, I think the Holy Grail is right up there, and uh, Graham Chapman just love it and great performance. Uh, it doesn't hurt that it's a, a movie made by a bunch of uh, very uh, silly English schoolboys who yep. have no respect for the monarchy whatsoever. Correct. It's very, very funny. I like that pick a lot. I love that pick. Thanks. I think Graham Chapman, you're right, Arthur, is such an excellent straight man in that movie. And uh, yeah, Eric Idle and uh, John Cleese get all the credit for Gilliam being so silly. And, yep. Yeah, but Chapman just holds it down the whole movie. He has to be. He has to have, you have to have a yeah. strong uh, central kind of straight core for that film yeah. to work yeah. at all or, or else it's just nonsense, unbridled anarchy. Yeah. And he really grounds it and makes it work. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what is your number last pick? My number last pick is also a cheat because it's not technically a monarch, but it's based on a monarch, uh, another fictional monarch. It is um, Prince Hamlet. Uh, but I went with the... Uh, not a cheat. Hold on, it is, because I went with the one played by Ethan Hawke, who is the son of uh, Denmark Industries uh, uh, CEO or something. Yeah, so it's technically yeah, a cheat. You're totally cheating. But you're going to say Jax Teller. Oh, you know what? Fair enough. Uh, no, I, give me give me Gen X Hamlet because what is Hamlet if anything but the uh, the blueprint for a Gen X Gen X ennui, uh, uh, choreographed or telegraphed like five hundred years uh, in the past. Um, Hamlet uh, is great. It's a great story. Uh, it's uh, my favorite of of uh, Shakespeare's stuff uh, that I've been exposed to. Um, I would say a fair amount. Public school, if it did anything, made me read uh, a lot of Shakespeare, and I like Hamlet a lot, man. I, I like it a a bunch and uh, not for nothing because it's probably the earliest example of existential drama. Uh, it's mm-hmm. just, we've got a, it's a character uh, piece. It is a, a full on uh, character study in the way that I really wish outlaw King was. Um, we get to know Hamlet very well. <laughs> we know his hopes and dreams and his, his nightmares. Uh, we know him intimately and I love Ethan Hawke's performance in that movie. I, I don't think he gets enough credit. Uh, I think, uh, when it kind of came out, it was like, oh, another, you know, repackaging of Shakespeare's material. But I think that's how you keep Shakespeare interesting is you continue to put it in, uh, new contexts and new environs because that's what, well, if we assume William Shakespeare was actually, you know, one person and not just a collection of writers, uh, that's what those plays did was they took, as Arthur said, the Outlaw King is missing a feeling of, you know, contemporary urgency. And that's what all of those historical plays uh, were. They were mm-hmm. just takes on Elizabethan England uh, and life in that society. Uh, Julius Caesar is not about ancient Rome. It is about Elizabethan England. Make no mistake. There's a reason why mm-hmm. people got so pissed off uh, about all of his plays about the monarchy, because uh, they weren't always nice. Uh, he did not have a, a high and mighty view of uh, of some of the kings uh, that he wrote plays about or that his committee wrote plays about. It's hard to be sure. Yeah, or that Philip knows. Marlowe wrote plays about. Nobody knows. Who knows? It doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is Hamlet's a damn good Ask play. Ask Emmerich. I'm sure he knows. I don't give a shit. He thinks he knows. Well, you know what? Somebody's got to have an opinion about this because I don't. Yeah. But I do have one opinion, and that is I like Ethan Hawke a lot. <laughs> 
And I think that movie's underrated. It's also got Steve Zahn in it. Uh, I think he's Rosencrantz. He might be Gilderstern. He actually might be Horatio. I don't remember. I think he's Rosenstern, <laughs> their lawyer. <laughs> have you guys... Have, have We need to do Rosencrantz and Gilderstern. I've never seen it, but... It's it, great. We need to do it. Uh, I would love to do it. Have you guys seen uh, the, the 90s Hamlet? No. Yeah. Have you? When you say yeah, do you mean the Mel Gibson one? No, I mean the uh, Ethan Hawke one. The I've Ethan seen Hawk Mel Gibson one too. Yeah, I've I, seen them all probably. You have? I, I like Hamlet. Olivier's good. Have you seen the super long uh, Kenneth Branagh one? Yeah, the like five I, hour one. I own it. How is it? It's is it right. worth a watch? It, I, I think it's one of the better ones. Where do they put that one? It's like 16th century France, or uh, it's more like Poland. Oh, okay. It feels it feels Weird. very sort of central, middle European. Gotcha. Okay, well, that's my last pick. Dustin, what is your number last pick my for Movie My number last Monarch? pick is keeping the Shakespeare train going. Uh, so Tatsuya Nakadai. I knew it. Um, as uh, Lord Ichimonji of uh, Ron. He's playing King Lear. Yeah, and good call. So, I knew that was going to be your last pick. Ron is a great film by Akira Kurosawa, which basically transposes the entire uh, story of King Lear into uh, feudal Japan, uh, changes the daughters of Lear into sons of Lear, because context is sort of crucial there. That is unfortunate, but nonetheless probably necessary for that particular contextualization. Um, that being said, his madness is awesome so king herod in greatest story ever told is a, a king herod played full of sort of paranoia mm -hmm. it's not a king herod who hears voices mm -hmm. it's a king herod who has been too long upon the throne who has fought too many battles who has too long had many attempts upon his life and is just a bit panic stricken and stricken and is a you know fright frighted at every sort of sound that comes from a corner right mm -hmm. that's the kind of hair that claude rains plays this kind of madness is i'm going to eat my own poop kind of crazy um, not that there's actual poop eating but it's it's that kind of madness. yeah it's he goes he's really lost the thread he really loses it. and this is really kind of crazy kabuki kind of performance uh that he does in terms of his makeup and whatnot. i've heard about this yeah and uh so uh, uh, Ron is just great. It's just one of the it's one of the great Kurosawa movies that sort of is undersung. Um, I feel like in many ways, it's 1985. It's full color, and uh, he plays with color. His use of telephoto lenses makes the film itself. I mean, the the film is just brilliant anyway. But this particular um, from Nakadai uh, performance is just off the wall. It is really really solid. And uh, you know, I, as far as like individual performances in a Kurosawa film. I think he might be the best performance Kurosawa's ever got, and that's against all the Mifune even. Wow! Um, I mean, it, it it's it's high level, and so like that King a lot, and uh, his arc is fascinating. They just did. Uh, I know I've talked about Friendly Fire on this show before. Uh, the uh, the podcast about war movies. Oh, okay. Um, they just did an episode about Ron that was really really great, and uh, just I gotta watch this movie, man. It's so good. I need to borrow this from you because no, I've been wanting to watch it. Please. I've got, I've got it. It's a double disc. Um, yeah. Yeah, bring it to me. Her I gotta watch thing. this damn movie. I need to do that. Okay, I'll remember to do it sometime. All right. Well, that's enough of, uh, of this nonsense. Now, time for something completely different. Yeah, it's time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh, and that's something completely different is a song and dance number. Go, Dalton. Hello, my honey. Hello, my darling. Hello, my ragtime gal. Danny boy. The, the pipes, the pipes are calling. That's Irish, guys. Oh. You take the low road and I don't Is there a difference? Yep. There, there is. There's a significant difference. I, really? sh I should know. I do not. Really? Oh, How about... Could uh, you tell me a bit about the difference between <laughs> them? That was uh, pretty good, man. Thank you. 
It's a different island. How about that? It is a different I island. I don't believe it. It's an <laughs> entirely different yeah, island. It's only in the it's movies. It's my island. <laughs> the, Irish, the Irish island's much smaller. You can only see it with a magnifying glass. Uh, also, their, the country con- of leprechauns. their conflicts, much more relevant. Sectarian conflict, still relevant. Um, Monarch just fighting for pots of gold at the end of the rainbows. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Being mean to the Irish is fun. Uh, well, yeah. Because in America... For some reason, most of us are Irish. Being proud, there are more people claiming Irish ancestry in the United States of America than there are people living in the country of Ireland. That's probably accurate. No, it is accurate. Well, yeah, that this is a fact. You know, in, in crazy ways, like yeah. dirty, dirty farm uh, potato eating rats it came back in greater numbers. Yeah, we did. Um, nonetheless, so uh, um, that Irish discussion was fun. Ours though, is a filthy people. Uh, yes, let's get back to Scotland. And let's get back to the 14th century. Okay. And let's talk about this crazy movie that we just watched. Um, let's talk in terms of form and, I guess, industry and that kind of stuff first. So this is Braveheart 2. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just curious as to, because I've got this very, very cynical take. Well, there's, there's, it's not, it is very much Braveheart 2. There's a cameo from William Wallace's torso. Yes. <laughs> which was very funny. That is funny. Well, I mean, he was cut up into four pieces yeah. at the four corners of England, which is sort of the uh, the whatever the ending titles of the first. Uh, yep. Again, not the same production. Oh, I, f- I forgot. We also get a cameo from his head on a spike as we enter London. Yes. Um. So yeah, dead William Wallace. Um. Doesn't look much like Mel, but that's okay. I'm yep. sure there are um, copyright purposes uh, for all of that. Um. But that being said, this is what I notice: is that you do have the same sort of loyal madman you know, um, Mm -hmm. sergeant-at-arms kind of character. That you have the same sort of, okay, we're not going to fight anymore, you know, we're going to make peace and we're going to move on, and then there's this radical betrayal from the British, or the English, excuse me, and then they fight dirty, and then, um, you know, this love that has sort of been going on, but it is sort of secret, but sort of not quite there, and finally it culminates in a way that involves a thistle and a particular way of photographing uh, the breast shots and whatnot. Again, that it, it exactly mirrors what you see in that movie. Then you have the triumphant battle. You have uh, the use of stakes and uh, the ways in which they can be impaling horses as a battle strategy that you you, you construct your Scottish strategizer um, as opposed to the uh, you know the British sort of we're just going to overwhelm you with numbers kind of. Um, idea that we know the land and we know the place a little bit better that we are sort of democratic fighting for the people kind of garbage as uh, sort of the log line of what we're doing in terms of our battling all of that is braveheart all over again except it ends with a happy ending because robert the bruce wins as opposed to mel gibson getting executed at the end of braveheart right um so here's my thought yeah um first of all i think that's terrible so we can talk about that. Wait, you think what's terrible? I think aping Braveheart is a terrible idea. Yeah, probably. But, but script-wise, go ahead, continue. I'll let's put a pin in that because I want to come back to it. Um, the other thing I think is is terribly cynical in terms of filmmaking that this movie is solely seeking to make cash off of people who like Braveheart. Braveheart's a great movie. Braveheart's a classic. Braveheart's a movie that a lot of people watch. A lot of people are fans of. Right. And uh, although it's not my favorite movie and I'm not one of those Braveheart fanboys, I know lots of them. Right. Yeah. There are lots of them. And that this movie says, hey, you know what we can do? We can make money off those people and we will give them exactly what they want. And that is the whole driving purpose behind everything that we're seeing on screen. I I think my counter argument with that would be that uh, 
this movie was gestating for David McKenzie separately from Netflix. Uh, so I would make kind of an auteurist argument here that David McKenzie is Scottish okay. and wants to make the Scottish movie that uh, he rightfully probably is mad that this Austro-American, uh, Australia-American, mm, however you would hyphenate that, this American... Uh, Antipodian-American. Yeah, this Australian-American movie icon uh, got to make uh, about uh, his his homeland, his people. And I, I, I'm going to go ahead and say props to Dave McKenzie for being like, hold on, man. No, I'm from this stupid island. Let me tell this story. Uh, because you're the guy that decided that uh, Robert the Bruce got to be portrayed as a coward uh, and made a really uh, problematic movie. Because I think what Outlaw King does is it, it removes the ability for Braveheart to act like it's for the common people. Because William Wallace was not a commoner. He was also a member of the Scottish nobility. Correct. Now, he was a lesser member of the nobility. He was not in line to the throne. But the dude was a landed gentry. You know, mm-hmm. he, he was not some peasant, uh, which I think the the film Braveheart, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but as I recall, actively tries to portray him as such, even though it knows he isn't. It, it really tries to make him look like a regular guy. Yeah. Like, like, basically, all I am compared to the regular peasants is I have a house. Which is just inaccurate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, plenty of uh, has plenty has been made about Braveheart's historical inaccuracy. In fact, it was a huge talking point about the movie when it came out and whether or not it was uh, troubling and problematic to the film. Uh, and I think it is, uh, because at the end of the day, they're all fighting for a monarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the idea that they're fighting against monarchy is absurd. What they're fighting against is English occupation. They're just fighting for their own king. And in fairness, when you are governed by a monarch, if that is the only form of governance that has occurred to any of you because nobody lets you read a book, you probably want your king to be from the same place as you. Sure. You want your king to be from your tribe. I would see that as better. It is progressive as such in as much as the 13th uh, or the 14th century was. Mm-hmm. So I I think that is the the thing that I will give Outlaw King is it says let's take Braveheart and strip out this idea that it is about a common man fighting for the common people. No, it's about a rich guy who decides he is going to fight for the common people. A rich guy who doesn't want to see his people drafted into wars that they have no uh stake in a guy who doesn't want to see his people be taxed for things that they don't have any stake in it's it's a fair argument fairly made but also it's still telling the world that monarchs are good i i think it's a rich guy who wants his tax money to stay in his coffers well and that's where we get to uh i i think the the thing we've kind of been dancing around and this is a good place to segue to it is we we referenced this earlier in the show do you print the truth or do you print the legend uh, Braveheart actively went for printing the legend, and right. this tries, which, fun fact, Braveheart, uh, actually a nickname for Robert the Bruce, it turns out. They even stole his nickname for that movie. Ah. Uh, so I, I think that's a big part of why, uh, that movie is not beloved by Scotland. Probably didn't hurt, uh, help that they were getting a whole bunch of American tourists for, you know, the next 25 years coming to, you know. Want to look at the Field of Falkirk yeah, or whatever. find their family's tartan or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, I get it. If you're a white person in America, you want some sort of ethnic Heritage. identity. Yeah. I, I get it. Uh, fun. I, I went through that phase, man. I think everybody does. Fun anecdotal story. Uh, a friend of mine is of Scottish descent, mm-hmm. and uh, um, his last name is the same as uh, an area in Scotland. Mm-hmm. And so he traveled into that area, and uh, there is a, uh, a lord of that last name, and they have a castle. And he looks in the phone book. They've got a phone number. He's in Scotland traveling around. He's like, oh, man, I'm going to go look and stuff. Okay. So he calls him up and says, hey, I may be related to you. And they say, speak to my attorneys. And they hung up right away. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> because it's like. They don't care. Well, no, they 
what they want, they're worried about is like, are you making a claim to our to our money and our land? Yeah, yeah, uh, which is nuts. Well, there's no for him. It's a sentimental thing. Yeah, for him, for yeah, them, for, it's just like you guys left. Yeah, you left. You've got your own place. Go yeah. be there. Yeah, Colma Council. And yeah, I, I that's mean, so funny. I just I could not believe it. But yeah, I I think it is. It's only uh, it makes sense for uh, white Americans to want some tie to that. I went through that phase. Uh, again, we've talked about this a little bit. Uh, my last name's Stewart. I, I was interested in that, and then I found out the guy on my dad's birth certificate probably wasn't even his dad, so ah, it doesn't even matter. Yeah, so uh, who cares? We're all just making up stories about where we come from anyway. Yeah. Write right. your own story. Who cares what dumb island your family came from? We're stuck in this shithole now. Uh, enjoy it. So it, it, to me, it's it's interesting to go ahead and print the legend because the fact doesn't matter. It was 700 years ago. Who cares? Right. Was Robert the Bruce a nice guy who didn't make a gross move on his new wife until like months and months of knowing each other and forming a relationship? Probably not. No. But is it cool to portray him that way? Yeah. We're got to make a movie about Kings. We might as well make them about Kings who are probably more interesting and noble than they were at the time. Let's right. tell a story about what it means to be a good person now, not what it meant to be a good person then. And I think that's where it's okay to go ahead and ape Braveheart and say, we're going to tell these sorts of stories. Let's try to give them a little bit. As Arthur mentioned, this doesn't really have any contemporary analogs or anything, but what it does have is a contemporary morality, which I think is mm -hmm. really interesting. And, and I think that does raise the important point. So why in 2018 do we tell this story? What is it, uh, again, if, if, if the point is not to, uh, again, sort of regurgitate history and give us a lecture as to these are the, uh, the, chrono the chronology of events that occurred in Scotland in the 14th century and the process by which Robert the Bruce finally was able to, un you know, um, undisputedly hold his uh, crown. If, that, if that's not the point, why do we tell, why is this story interesting why is this a story that would resonate in 2018? What do we think? I, I, I think the I, I think the foundation is laid in 2018 uh, as a you know no matter where you fall, it is a, a very a, a time of kind of cultural unrest. There's a lot of anger and frustration on each side and, and like anxiety and eh, maybe uh, that might be part of it. Uh, there's a lot of you know, threats of uprisings and rebellions and revolutions and, and it's a time of political unrest and you know we've we've got the perfect fodder to make a movie that can really make a statement about our current time the the moment we're living in and i think that's where the film fails it, it doesn't really want to wrestle with what's going on in contemporary culture and you've got the perfect stage you've got the perfect plot you've got the perfect setting to make that film and tell that story using those characters and, and it shies away from really doing that because it just want to mostly tell the truth it, it wants to print the truth with a few few nuggets of the legend in there it, it doesn't really want to grapple with anything and yeah. in a time where it's ripe for grappling with it but at the same time it's willing to fudge the truth when it's dramatically interesting like right. king edward was at that battle he did not die until months later. Mm. Uh, but in the film, it's portrayed as him dying, and then Philip is leading that battle, which is dramatically interesting because we've set up Philip and Robert as these kind of uh, foils to one another. That's more dramatically interesting uh, to have them fighting each other and then uh, Robert standing covered in mud, triumphant, and uh, Philip throwing up because he can't stand how gross a medieval battlefield is. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, that's that's what they want to go for. They want to show how rugged and badass Robert is, and what a what a, a namby pamby boy uh, Edward is uh, or Philip is. It's yeah, it's whatever, man. It's yeah. it's just more of the same. And Arthur's right; like it needs to make those those brave statements. And I think the only thing that you could argue is, uh, again, I, I mentioned earlier, give me the movie about Scotland saying we want to stay in the EU, so we're going to split from the UK. Give me that political thriller. That's really the only people this movie is for, is Scottish think, people. I don't think it's that movie, though. I, we, hold on. Give me a second. It's not. But that's the closest thing you could say that it's for anybody. The problem is Netflix is an international distributor. Mm-hmm. So everybody in the world that has Netflix had this pop up. And really, it's only relevant for the people of Scotland to have some sort of cultural identity separate from the rest of the Britons, right? It yeah. is saying, we are separate from Britain. Uh, we we are separate from Northern Ireland and England and Wales because we were occupied. Well, Northern Ireland was occupied, but that's a different story. Right. Uh, but we had this lengthy war for independence, and finally, through uh, tenacity and perseverance, ended up with one of our guys as the king of all this shit. Um, and I guess that's that's what the argument is: is that we are separate from the English. But okay, who cares? It was seven hundred years ago, man. Mm-hmm. I, and again, I don't. I wish we had like a, a big, you know, listener that was a huge fan that lived in Scotland, so we could get somebody uh, to write into us to tell us a little bit more about what does this story mean to them? Because it means nothing to me. Yeah, and I, I would like to know what the story of Robert the Bruce means to just you know some regular schmuck in Scotland uh, in Edinburgh who just you know enjoys going to the movies and I don't know eating blood sausages or whatever. Yeah. I don't oh, know or drinking is... Iron Brew. There we go. There's a Scottish reference. I had one. Uh, I don't know, man. Uh, yeah, of what is Robert the Bruce a symbol? That would be Bingo. Uh, be something curious for me to know as well. But here's the thing about the movie itself. So, first of all, I think there is a way in which, um, as an outlaw king, this sort of insurrectionist, rebellionist, that you see tyranny and that you say no and you mm-hmm. fight against it, that there's a way in which this sort of North American context plays in that. And I think there's a sort of anti-Trumpism that you could read into that um, of the film. But I, I'm not sure that that's... Yeah, there, there's also an, an anti-liberalism that you could read into that, yeah. right? Like, you're coming here telling us how to live our lives. You, you can It's apolitical in a way that allows any narrative. Sort of that. But uh, with, with, with regard to isolation in Scotland... It seems to me that it's almost more pro-Brexit than anything. You think so? Because the problem that they're having with the English is that they're taking their money and mm. they're using it for stuff that they don't approve gotcha. of or they don't okay. want, and they're getting them invested in foreign entanglements of which they have nothing to do with. And so okay. it, it seems like the movie itself reads as more pro-Brexit than anything to me. I would disagree with that because I think the argument could be made, again, Scotland by majority uh, wanted to stay in uh, within the European Union, mm-hmm. and I think the argument can be made that Scotland wants to make those decisions for themselves. Right. Well, I'm, I'm not saying about the Scottish people and democracy. I'm just talking about whoever made this movie, Mackenzie. Mackenzie and his writers, and it, it, it seems to be a bit more on the conservative bent. They may be the Chris Nolans of this particular part of the world. I, I don't know that I, I see that. I see why you would say that, but I guess I don't. I don't know that I entirely agree with that take. Uh, but you know, I don't, I don't think you're out of your chair for suggesting that either. So. So, okay, well, there's a couple other things that I think we probably ought to talk about. Let's talk about this movie and its relationship to violence first. I think it's one of our favorite subjects. and We do uh, like it. We do like some violence. Um, bring on the old hyper-violence. Ultra. Uh, ultra-violence, whatever. Um, bring bring, yeah, bring yeah. it on. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, what do we think about this movie in relationship to that? Is it a horror of war, or is it like, ooh, bring me the gore? What are we doing here? 
I think it's a bring me the gore. I don't. I, I think there are moments that play, and I'll, I'll let Arthur take this because I know he is very interested in one particular moment uh, that we were talking about before Dustin got here. Uh, I talked about it on mic already. Uh, the disembowelment. Oh no! Yeah, we've not talked about. Arthur that. has an opinion about disembowelment. Oh, do you? Uh, for me, I think I'm pro. <laughs> <laughs> We're bipartisan. Uh, for me, it does read as a ooh. Yeah, if you're a real gore hound, as I, I, I look, I I like a I like movie gore. Mm-hmm. I do. It's fun. It's interesting. It's uh, I don't want to see people get good in real life. That's mm-hmm. bad. I like to see it in movies. It's cathartic. Um, and I think especially when you have Aaron Taylor Johnson just like swinging a sword or you have that, that, that ginge swinging that pickaxe, like it's cool when you see an English soldier get bucked off his horse onto a giant wooden stake. It's cool. And yeah, it is not trying to shy away from the fact that, uh, medieval warfare was gross. I mean, Mm -hmm. everybody's covered in mud and blood and poop by the end of the battle, but, uh, it's still gnarly and cool and like the Put a metal riff over that instead of like uh, mm-hmm. sweeping orchestral music, and it's badass. Right. But a Arthur, Marth, that's what you need. The band you need is a Marth. Good to know. I'll throw to Arthur now, and we'll talk about that 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 moment you and I talked about. Uh, the uh, the nice old the nice old disembowelment in the the courtyard. Nice little is not a good set of words. I wasn't I, ready for I that. I disagree. I was not I was prepared. Not uh, that is. It, because it's, I, I think there's just, uh, I think there's a hint of honesty in what he's trying to do here. He's there's a bit of romantic romanticization. Is that a word? Yeah, yeah, romanticization. Um, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna use that word. Romanticization of the the violence of war. I, I think it's there, and I think it helps uh, set the tone for what, these these war scenes. But I I think it, it brings a sense of realism and weight as well with it, and, and that really kicks off. Um, with that disembowelment, I think uh, we see a few moments. Maybe we may see some stuff earlier. I think with uh, things getting caught on fire, they're raiding and pillaging and all that good stuff. Um, but I, I think that that moment really does a couple things. One, it's just harrowing and brutal, mm-hmm. but it raises the stakes of of what everybody in this film is willing to do. I think and. Just to speak of that, I mean, it's not just uh, I'm going to slice this guy's belly open his ear and bleed. You see. Everything you see the muscle, you see the 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 skeletal, you see the the organs just drop out, and it is yeah. A, a if you've sh- ever a sheet if, of fat, yeah. if you've Ugh. ever you know gutted a deer, uh, it, that's what you got. Yeah, man, and it is it is harrowing and, and intense, and it is one of those things you can play it one of two ways. You could either, um, you know, kind of uh, pull away and just like let the imagination take over. Or you can just kind of show it full force, and it's deciding on which one of those kind of you know e- extreme uh, the the French extremity type of yeah. horror, or if it's uh, the more imaginative Texas Chainsaw style of horror. Does it serve the purpose only of saying Philip's a bad guy? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I that, think so. I mean, that's yeah. it, it's raising the stakes. We, yeah. we know what this guy's willing to do now. Yeah. I you're you're right, Arthur. It's horrifyingly anatomically correct. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it does happen in a wide shot, which is you know helpful. Thankful. But you yeah you see, I, it's one of the grosser gut moments I've ever seen on film. Yeah. Uh, but I think Dustin's right. I think really in terms of the story, it only serves to to show that Philip's a, a bad dude. Yeah. With bad intent, um, and we we shy away from the villainy of warfare and when it's done by the Scottish. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. 
um, because they're taking back their own castles. Mm-hmm. And uh, and again, it's it's a cool like montage of let's take back our stuff and then salt the earth so they can't use it against yeah. us. It's pretty badass. But we do shy away from what we can only assume were war atrocities on the other side. Right. I'm, I'm sorry, there are no good guys in war. Uh, when you send a, a gaggle of bloodthirsty idiots into a castle, they don't, you know, not piss on the linen, uh, right. to put it politely. Uh, they do gross stuff. They do bad stuff. Uh, I, I assume. I don't know. I haven't read a lot about medieval warfare, but, uh, you know, I, I've read about warfare in general, and uh, people do war crimes. And just because it's in their uh, their own kingdom doesn't change that, you know? They're going to do gross stuff to the English because they can and because they're mad at them. So I, I think it does only serve to vilify uh, Philip. I think the violence is never called into question when it's done by a Scotsman. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, again, I mean, that's the movie we're watching, right? right? We're not watching a movie that's a documentary about or a, you know, a, a realist depiction of uh, the horrors of medieval warfare. We're watching something where uh, red shirts get it bad. And the uh, pretty people get to swing swords and do cool choreography, uh, when in reality it's much more random and chaotic than that, or right. it was much more random and chaotic than that, probably. But, for sure, for sure. Uh, I think Arthur's right, though. It does try to have those moments where it says, this is horrible. This is not good. Uh, I think it tries to have its cake and eat it, too, though, as most war films do. Yeah. And uh, it falls short in that regard for me. Yep. Especially because I know David McKenzie has made movies that deal with violence in a much more interesting way. Yeah, I yeah I I tend to agree. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about is um, sort of the inciting incident of the film because it does raise an interesting question that is sort of one of the scandals of uh, ethics and how we process what happens in the world, mm-hmm. and that is uh, the murder of Comrin or Com Common James Common J- James Common. Yeah, it's just pronounced Common. Okay, um, like like the like the um, yep. hip hop star. Yep. Okay. Um, so the murder of Common in the church. Uh, which is uh, a thing that happened, which is pretty metal. And uh, that's a thing that did occur and that he uh, received forgiveness and absolution from the church. Um, the movie sets it up as that it's a very justified thing that if he hadn't done so, they would have all died. We don't know that. We don't know that to be true. But yeah, I looked this up just to, so we could come into the show knowing uh, there has never been historical consensus on the why. Uh, on whether or not it was premeditated, whether or not, because that was the English propaganda that was spread, was that Bruce invited James Conn. They were known rivals. He lured him there to murder him. Um, the only thing that's left out uh, in this depiction, uh, apparently he stabbed him, ran out, and uh, his, some of his bannermen ran in and finished the job to make sure. Make sure he's uh, dead. He's like, I did a crime, and they backed him up. Uh, but you're right. In the film, it's couched as, I'm going to call the cops on you, and he says, no, you're not. <laughs> yeah, I can't let you do that. Sorry, buddy. Uh, I gave you a chance. But but the question that it raises is this, is that, of course, he um, you know he goes to the bishops, and it seems like he goes sort of contrite. This is what I did, you know, do what you want, um, and they make a decision that politically it's best for the Scottish church. Um, this is pre-Knox, before the sort of separation of the Church of England, later the Church of Scotland, and other sort of uh, individual churches of the United Kingdom. Yeah, there's no Anglican from, church at this point. From the Church of Rome yet, but it's it's on its way. It's already becoming a sort of... There, there's definitely a political separation and tension. Henry VIII is still about 250 years yeah, out, though. But we, yeah, it's a minute till it occurs, but yet those um, um, that crockpot, um, it, it's 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 starting to cook now. Um, <laughs> it, it just takes a long time to get there. That's all. That's all the European church is just uh, just a, a slow cooker. A slow cooker. Sometimes it explodes on accident. Sometimes it lights the house on fire. Uh, and sometimes it you know makes chili. Uh, yeah. Um, 
so thus and therefore what we then see is though um that he's offered forgiveness absolution and uh, some people um i guess maybe a majority the, the the film really never indicates whether the majority of scott's backed robert the bruce or not um but the majority it seems uh, according to the film back robert the bruce that he's been forgiven and absolved by the church so we move on and then there's a great portion of the church that does not forgive that well the church forget the, the scottish the church, church forgives him the great uh, scottish community yeah several of the nobles and lords are like no you can't you kill the guy and you killed the guy in church and so you're you're toast and this raises an interesting 21st century question okay uh, this is a long setup to get here and that being the scandal of forgiveness that forgiveness itself is something that we are still reckoning with if one repents what do, do we require again what do we require of repentance um, uh, so some genuineness, some authenticity. Um, are there tests for that? Because we're living in this moment where people are trying to rehabilitate careers after the Me Too confrontations. And uh, d- does a person deserve to never work again if they've done a bad thing? Uh, these are all interesting questions. And I think that this film does raise some of that. That there is this idea that Robert the Bruce did a horrible. I mean, in, in terms of sort of religious morality, murdering somebody in a church is about as bad as it gets, right? I mean, yeah, the only sin you could do worse than that is being a clergy member in that church. <laughs> well, you ha- you have to let me rephrase it. You have to be a clergy member to do the only thing worse than murdering somebody in church. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, there, there are other terrible, terrible, yeah. terrible things. But um, yeah, you're, it's pretty. It's in the top five for yeah, sure. Definitely super bad. Yeah, it's um, no good. And uh, that this person, you know, um, goes and repents and is forgiven is the question is, is is there an existence of this in a cultural sense? And I think this is I mean, we're not going to come to an answer. No, we won't. But I I just want to sort of throw it out there because I do think the film raises it and uh, to raise it at this particular moment, I find it to be pretty interesting. Well, I I mean, I, I don't think Robert the Bruce feels bad about it. At least, again, we're we're talking about the film Outlaw King, not the historical Robert the Bruce. I have no idea about. Him, I don't yeah. think Chris Pine's character feels bad. Yeah, he did. He did what he had to. He what he thought he had to do. This guy's gonna call the cops. Uh, in in this case, the King of England, and tell them my plan, so he can take all my stuff. This guy wants all my stuff. I don't want him to have all my stuff. Shoink! Didn't have to kill him. He could have said, mm-hmm. "All right, dude, bye. I'm gonna round up everybody else. You do what you got to do." Uh, but he went ahead and knifed him anyway. And uh, if there was a real act of contrition, it probably would have involved the family uh, or the house common and uh, saying, hey, look, I'm sorry I killed your uh, the leader of your family, but uh, this is why I did it. You can uh, join in or, or not. Yeah. I'll give you the same deal that I gave James. So I, I don't know that there's a real act of contrition and repentance there because it's just the precursor to more murder. You raise an interesting point there that I, I just think is just an, one of the nuances in the conversations of forgiveness is that the way in which we narrativize uh, people doing a bad thing is that when uh, we are wanting to be sympathetic towards them or gracious or forgiving mm-hmm. toward them, it is because they've done the bad thing, they've done the wrong thing for the right reasons, or that they've done it because of circumstances beyond their control. Yeah. That there's a way in which um, our culture or the contemporary sort of moment that we're in cannot deal with people who just like, you know what, I just didn't want to do the right thing. I just wanted to do a bad thing. Well, and I think it requires somebody to be willing to say, I just wanted to do a bad thing. Mm. And that was fucked up. But I think people who just want to do a bad thing, 
very often don't want to admit they just they're, wanted to do a bad thing. They're not repentant, is what you're saying, yeah. And I think that is the uh, the sticking point at the heart of the question of forgiveness, right? Is mm-hmm. uh, you have to have a penitent sinner, right? And I think we very rarely have that when it comes to these conversations uh, that we're having over the last year, in particular. Uh, I don't. I think we have a lot of half-assed apologies, and we have a, a lot of uh, half-assed contritions, or we have people laughing in court sometimes. Right. Um, so, uh, I, I mean, I think you're right, Dustin. That forgiveness is, is something that is uh, definitely to be talked about right now, especially. But I think part of the reason we don't want to talk about that yet is we're still we haven't gotten through the truth and reconciliation. Yeah, entirely. we're still doing the reckoning right now. Yeah. yeah, we haven't fully gotten to the point where people can start asking for forgiveness because there has not yet been a a full uh, tribunal, as right. it were. So uh, you know, you got to have Nuremberg before you can have um, the good German. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think that's totally yeah. fair. You you gotta you gotta have some hangings before you can lionize Oscar Schindler. Right. Uh, and and I, I, and I totally agree with that. Yeah. But I, I think it's just important to sort of inject that in the conversation because I do think that's a place we've got to go. Yeah, for that, sure. That eventually we have to realize, okay, we have to move on and we have to realize that some people work for the SS. Yep. And they're still around and we don't need to hang them all. And real quick, listener, if you think it's a little bit, uh, overboard for us to compare sexual predators to Nazis, fuck mm. you. That's what I got, man. Sorry, dude. Um, uh, it, it, I'm, it's bad. It's 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 low down and dirty. Uh, it's it's about as bad as being party to genocide. Yeah, I, th- I, I have no problem. If you if you, uh, if you serialize abuse, you ain't good people, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you uh, partake in the uh, the extermination of people for uh, ethnic or religious reasons, you ain't good people. You both go on the same boat, in my opinion. Uh, now, and as Dustin has pointed out, I think there should be a point where we say. This is your last chance to get off this boat, and these are the things required of you to yeah. get off that boat. I think an opportunity to rejoin the human yeah. family should be possible. Absolutely, you but know. but when you do it, when you do a deed like that, especially when it is uh, surgical and uh, me- mechanized, when it takes place in a system, whether or not it, whether it's a government system uh, or it's a com- commercial system, mm-hmm. uh, when you force people to be in your system, whether it's your country or your industry, and say you're going to play by my shitty gross rules. Yeah, man, that's bad. That's using power to do a bad thing, and that's totally the, the worst thing you can do. It's the thing that divorces you from the human family. Yeah. So, sorry, I just I felt the need to uh, qualify uh, that. It's it's not to make light uh, of genocide. It is to make clear the severity of other crimes. And I am all with you on that. Um, and so, yeah. Th- anyway, I just I, I feel like that you know sort of inciting incident, uh, the 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 forgivability of a Robert the Bruce. And um, I think that is a question that we're going to have to start wrestling with right now. Is there a forgivability? Are there certain social sins of which there is no forgiveness available? Um, or that there is forgiveness, but there are certain consequences that are sort of um, unremovable. That, you know, if you do, you know, for instance... I think it's the latter, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, for obviously, if you... Um, are you know an uh, amazing hacker and you take down the CIA and the you know NORAD and you start to send you know all of our uh, missiles against uh, you know the North Koreans and something crazy like that if you get caught you're probably going to get banned from the internet and a computer the rest of your life and yeah, probably. Th- th- that's a, that's a sort of a natural consequence of it but you'll probably be released from prison as well yeah and so there, there I, I do think that we're going to have to find some way to negotiate that language is that we have to have permanent consequences. You are no longer to be around children, father, thus and such. You're no longer allowed to be on film sets, such and such. Yeah, you, you have to find some other way to work. 
right? That because that particular area becomes your predatory playground. But that being said, there are ways in which you can still earn money and still, you know, be, uh, you know, perhaps famous. Well, we're also talking about people who have more money than uh, most yes. of us see in a lifetime. So Correct. they're fine. But, you know, I mean, some way to pick up the shambles of your life, you yeah. know, and that. And so what does that look like? Are there ways that you can even return to the are, are there certain circumstances in which one who has done some things that they ought not have done can return to a film set? What exactly are the specific consequences for the specific situations? And what does, again, sort of that reinstatement of the human family you know what does it entail? Yeah, and I think that's I think it's important because what Robert the Bruce gets is carte blanche and sort of automatic carte blanche, and I'm uncomfortable with that. Well, and it's part of the nature, as Arthur mentioned. Like when you make a historically based film, you got to pick your story. This movie seems like it takes place over a com- couple of months. This was like five years. Yeah, I mean, this was a long time in Robert the Bruce's life that this occurred over. So. You, when you condense a narrative like that, I, I think really what this movie probably should have been, been about is just that last battle. Mm-hmm. That's it. You know, you can reveal through dialogue, character, and uh, exposition that's necessary to understand the stakes of that battle. But I think that's that's probably really any war film. Uh, if it's about more than like two people, four people, five people, you know, if it's more about more than a squad. You should probably just make it about the one battle. Yeah, I think Dunkirk is a great example of that. Was that what you were about to say, Arthur? Yeah, I was going to bring it up. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a, how you tell that story is you just make it about that week, and that's it. So yeah. I don't know. I'm not a filmmaker though. I just like talking about them. Sure, same. Uh, those are our thoughts on uh, this movie. We now come to the point of the show where we render a verdict: shelf or trash. Elsewhere instead, I go to you first, Arthur. Shelf or trash? Elsewhere instead for Outlaw King. I think I'm just going to trash it. Um, I mean, it looks pretty. I didn't. I wasn't mad that I watched it, but it's it's nothing vital to catch. Uh, so I'll say trash. Instead, I think you should definitely watch David McKenzie's previous feature, uh, Hell or High Water, which is uh must see. Uh, definitely, definitely catch up with that one. Um, I would also suggest uh more uh Francis Pugh. So go watch Lady Macbeth. Uh, which is just a great film, and that's really all I've got for you. Watch those instead. I couldn't think of anything else, really. Uh, go watch Lion King. Have some fun. Uh, have some uh, growing pains with Simba. There you go. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you say, Dalton? Shelf or trash? Elsewhere instead. It's really been sad to watch Netflix turn into a, a 1998 blockbuster. Uh, there's just not a lot good there. So no, I, I think you can definitely skip this. I would agree with Arthur. I think Hell or High Water, uh, unlike this film, is a straight-up masterpiece. Um, I would also recommend Start Up, the film he made before Hell or High Water, which is a, a father's a film about fathers and sons in a way this movie wishes it was. Uh, I would recommend you watch Seven Samurai. It's a yeah, it's a better character drama. It's a better you know swords and sandals movie. Uh, different kind of sandals, obviously, but you know, still a film about a feudal society. I just think it's more interesting. Um, watch Game of Thrones. You know, I, look if you want to watch something that's got a bunch of violence and and political intrigue, don't watch something about real kings because who cares? Watch something about fictional kings and queens that tries to bring in modern day uh, political ideas uh, and ideas of morality. Um, Game of Thrones is honestly way more problematic than this movie is, which is weird that this film is kind of free of problematization. There we go. Uh, Other than questions of, you know, whether or not monarchies are are, uh, ethical. But, um, yeah, just watch something that gives you more character before it gives you uh, its gore set pieces. That's that's what I got to say. 
All right, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I also say trash. Picker of the film, and I trash it as well. So I guess that says something. Kill your that, darlings. Uh, kill is not my darling. Um, but keep Chris Pine. Can we keep Chris Pine? Oh, of course. Still better than Mother of Tears. Can we? Is, you, yes. Still better than Mother of Tears. Yeah, yep. we, we. You haven't have, redeemed yourself yet, pops. Oh, shut up. Um, it, it's better than Lost in Space. What else did you watch? You should probably watch Braveheart. Braveheart. I mean, Braveheart. I think is a moving. It's like three and, hours long. I have and, no interest in rewatching and, it. And thematically and interesting film. I think it's. When I, was the last time you watched it? Oh, it's probably been five or ten years. I I think you would probably disagree if you rewatched it. I, I mean, I I still find it to be. I mean, I, I think about it sometimes. Really? And I'm like, you know, it, I think there's a there's a certain balletism and and poeticism uh, to uh, the narrative arcs and uh, to the violence even uh, that okay. is lacking in this particular film. So I, I think it's an inferior son. Uh, to a uh, a much better pedigreed father, um, so I would say that I would also say if you just want this kind of good, fun, violent kind of stuff, and just you know you're into this, the Thirteenth Warrior, Antonio Banderas and uh, Vikings is rad. It's a movie I like a lot, so uh, check that out because you know it's a good time. And uh, yeah, I think that's gonna be it. Uh, those are my two recommends uh, that you should watch instead. Um, so there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts on this. Well, I picked a movie, and uh, now I don't have to stay anymore, do I? Uh, what are we doing next? Well, I, 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 Dalton's making me go next. I was wanting to go last. Talk me into it. I, I'm sorry. I, I wasn't ready. I, uh, guys, I, I went back and forth. There were about five movies on my list that I was, that were blind spots, the genre picks that are ripe for analysis that I really wanted to catch. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, uh, there was one in particular that I was really hoping, uh, I knew it was going to go streaming, uh, at some point. Uh, I was just hoping it would go streaming before we record next time and i think the stars aligned uh in in my favor uh so in in the words of the great barry manilow oh mandy oh, yes. oh we're gonna watch mandy oh see i've already seen mandy i'm the only one i here. haven't seen it yeah you guys are gonna go bug fuck for this movie <laughs> it is nuts where is it, it is streaming now I think you will. I it, don't, I, it hits streaming on November 29th on Shutter. Perfect. Excellent. Perfect timing. Uh, well, well, yeah. Bellas? Well, I'll, I'll stay for one more show for that. I thought you might. Yeah, you got me talked into it. I had no idea what we were going to watch. Uh, so. I thought you were going to say, let's get it on. Uh, Barry Manilow. <laughs> That's Marvin Gaye. Shit, it is. Oh, man. <laughs> <sighs> All right. Well, always trying to er always trying to erase people of color, aren't you, Dalton? Oh, Damn it! Man. I walked right into that one. Oh, yeah, mercy. I deserved that. Hey, you know we have a good time here on this show, and we're glad you tuned in. To Usually, listen to all of us sound dumber than we really are, um, and that is what we always do when we do this stuff together. We're having a great time having conversations about the movies. We invite you to be part of it. You keep watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Good Trash Genre Cast. The Good Trash Genre Cast is a product of Good Trash Media. For more info on everything Good Trash, head on over to goodtrashmedia.com. Our intro music, as always, is an original composition by friend of the show, Aaron Rodgers. And our outro music this week is I'm Gonna Be, parentheses, 500 Miles, by the Scottish duo, The Proclaimers. When I wake up, well, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who wakes up next to you. When I go out, yeah, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who goes along with you. If I get drunk, well, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who gets drunk next to you. And if I hit